Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and I'm so excited today to be talking about HBO Max's winning time with so many of the behind the scenes artisans who have done fantastic work on the series. We are joined today by cinematographer Don Todd Ben Hazel, who directed episodes one, two, five, six, nine, and 10. Um, and Mihai Malamare, who is the cinematographer for three, four, seven, and eight. Emma Potter, who is the costume designer. Rich Toyan, who's the production designer of the series. And Gabe Hilfer, who is the music supervisor. And Todd and Mihai, I wanted to start by um, asking you about the, the film stock that you ended up landing on for the series and used throughout, because it's not just that it was 35 millimeter footage as kind of the primary source. There's also 16 millimeter and eight millimeter. And it's not that one individual scene is, is shot one specific way. There's kind of like a real myriad of styles and yet it still feels very seamless. So I was really interested for both of you in, in how you approached filming scenes throughout the season and how you would determine What's the film stock? What's the footage that we really want to capture within this scene? Um, do you want to jump in, Mihai? <laughs> I mean, I was trying to figure out if there are any stocks that we didn't use. Yeah, I know. I was thinking the same thing. I know. I guess there was, we didn't shoot actual ectochrome film. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, I guess I could start. I mean, I guess the rule book for us was like that uh, the base look was this like uh, 35 millimeter look that is made to replicate film back in the time or like a film print that's been forgotten about and like found in an old dusty box from the time period was like our main look. And then, you know, the rules were that like eight millimeter would be used to set up time and place. And this old vintage video format would be used in more like emotional, vulnerable ways and to like reproduce basketball and reproduce like uh, television footage. Um, but then we started like breaking those rules and using the footage in mid scene for more like jazzy emotional reasons, you know, and then there were also flashbacks that we used, um, different film looks that were based in looks like a uh, photography looks of the different time periods to kind of match those flashbacks. I mean, I think that's like the basic rule book and map we had. Yeah. Mihai. Yeah. Were there any particular scenes where you really remember kind of having that rule book that, that Todd was just talking about me high and, and then where it really kind of helped to break away from those rules and, and to really kind of change up what you were using throughout a scene? I mean, I think the, the, the whole look evolved so much. I mean, I think it's what, what Todd, on, uh, Todd and Adam did for the pilot was brilliant and it was, it was just, just an amazing uh, visual style to, to have as a base. And then we... Um, from there, we start building up, and of course, we we realize that eight millimeter is such an amazing tool that uh, that evolved as well. And we started to use triax and black and white reversal and black and white negative for for that as well. So um, that's why I'm thinking it's like even even fifty daylight. I think probably that's um, the one we 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 didn't use as much, but. Um, I remember we, we did try to use it just to, to gain a little more color saturation for the Ocotillo Lodge, for example. Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing that comes to mind is like uh, Kareem's flashbacks in episode five when he is um, uh, getting his name, uh, you know, when Lou Alcindor is becoming Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, we shot a lot of that footage on black and white 16 millimeter, uh, which was referencing a lot of the protest news footage from the Harlem protests in the 60s uh, of that time. So I feel like that's like one of the times I can remember like 
breaking our own rules because something felt like right, you know, it felt like emotionally right from the period. Yeah, I really love that. And um, jumping over to the costumes, Emma, you know, I was I was interested in your process and a lot of the research that you did and looking very specifically at, you know, what the uniforms were at the time, but also the way that things were a little bit more ad hoc. It wasn't, you know, this is the uniform for the season. There might be a player wearing shorts from two seasons ago. There might be a number that's written on a jersey instead of kind of stitched onto a jersey or printed on a jersey and how that really informed not just the uniforms that you were then recreating for certain moments in the show, but how that influenced you for a lot of the costumes the rest of the time in the series as well. Well, thank you for noticing those small details. Um, I think that was, you know, what you've mentioned is one of the things that was most kind of inspiring about looking at the team. You know, when you think of the Lakers now, it's this empire and going back into these old photos or old footage and comparing and re realizing that, you know, it's a little more thrown together. Like in some ways it made the building up of this team as we watch it happen throughout the season have, I guess, like perhaps a sense of like more passion to it in a way in that, you know, you could see players coming into practice and they would have stolen something from a few seasons ago and they're still wearing it or it just made it feel a little more kind of attainable and real. And I loved that having that information juxtaposed with the story as we're watching these characters kind of find themselves. Um, I think it definitely informed the design in that one of the early conversations I was having with everyone was this idea that, you know, when you go into the arena, you're not seeing Lakers colors everywhere and you're not seeing the Lakers logo everywhere. Like, out on the street or and fans wearing it at all. And so as we move through the season, there was this idea of introducing more of that, both on the players and also on people within the crowd and kind of picking small details of it up. So I think it definitely influenced the design overall, also within the Lakers girls too. The first uniform you see is um, just has a kind of a v-neck and rhinestone design to it and later in the season there's a lakers logo version of it so there's this idea of kind of branding and building upon and becoming more of this like empire that you know today mm -hmm. i love that and, and rich kind of similarly for you there's obviously certain spaces that you would have archival footage that you can look at photographs that you can look at you know where they were practicing what did the locker room look like but again there's there's details that carry out beyond that like if we look at the location where cookies on the phone with with magic a lot of the time it's in front of a yellow wall so that creates a subconscious cohesion to the idea of him and the lakers and so what were the ways that you also used archival materials and then really created this linearity through a lot of the other locations production design wise? Well, you know, in terms of uh, archival uh, reference, um, you're always looking for that because anytime you're working on a historical piece, uh, you, um, this is somewhat of a historical record for a lot of people who will never look up the actual historical record. And so um, you want to be at least truthful in terms of the, what you're trying to portray. However, um, it is a narrative. And so we depart from that and we um, push things and pull things and, and we, uh, we try uh, different things out. And, um, you know, with regards to the film stock that you were mentioning earlier, um, you know, in, in terms of colors, there was, uh, I, 
I, I always like to push colors. And, uh, but um, there were times where I, I went to Todd or Mihai and I said, what do you think about this color? Is it going to be too hot? Is it going to be not enough? And the, yeah, I would hear back from both of those guys. Well, the film stock we're using uh, is really, it's really going to um, make it bloom or it's really going to make, make it great. And in fact, when you look at uh, some of the footage and dailies, some of those colors really bloomed and like more than I ever thought that they ever would, which, you know, always has a concern for me uh, from the uh, aspect that it's not going to then dissuade or distract away from um, the characters in front of the camera and specifically with costumes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, on, on many occasions, uh, Emma, Emma and I would try and coordinate in terms of that, but um, the, the film stock sometimes pushed it beyond what <laughs> you were sort of expecting. Uh, I guess case in point would be uh, the MSU hallway that where, where Cookie's on the phone in her college dorm. That yellow isn't quite that yellow and that it really, that really bloomed on, on film. Um, or in the uh, shoe store, there's a one particular shelf that has this green shag on it. And, uh, and man, did that ever get green on camera. But uh, so you're always kind of, uh, you know, looking for those, those opportunities because a lot of times they are opportunities to really kind of be, have fun with it, really push the period. But because it is period and because it is, uh, has a somewhat of a historical reference and record, um, you want to be fairly truthful uh, to what you're telling. Uh, I mean, it's not like we're, we're talking about like the space program or Abraham Lincoln or something, but, um, but it is a time period where uh, you want to have that reference so that the viewer can settle in and accept what you're putting forth and then to uh, enjoy the piece overall. Mm -hmm. That's really, really wonderful to hear so much detail. And, and Gabe, in terms of the music supervision on the show, what I really love about it is there's such a cohesiveness to the music throughout, and yet you're using so many different genres at every single moment. And any differentiation in choice could completely change the trajectory of any scene. You know, if we look at like the Adrian Brody scene where he's kind of on the roof with the baseball bat, you could have done so many different genre choices. And, and throughout the series, you're really using everything from hip hop, rock, jazz, you know, classical. And so what was your process of looking at each individual scene and, and thinking not just what would be a great piece for this, but really what's the genre, what's the rhythm, what's the tonality of this scene and how I can enhance it with music? Well, uh, well, first of all, we got a great palette to paint on that all of these amazing people here like were able to set up for us like in production and, and, uh, and you know, most of my job in this show is in post. So what we were able to do is we were able to, I mean, post is cool because we get to play trial and error. You know, we get to try stuff and if it looks stupid, we can not use it. We could try 10 different things and try to figure out how it works. I mean, we have an incredible team on here like Todd Casal, the music editor has been like, invaluable because we uh we inherited the editors took the way that the the scheduling for this show worked out is that the editors got a chance to temp it with whatever they wanted um and certain sections they put in crazy songs and like the scenes that you're talking about right now with adrian brody on the roof had like massive songs that everyone here would know that i'm not going to name so that we don't get sued but we uh and then we were trying to figure out how to get some of the essence of that, you know, and felt authentic and it was from the time period and really um, helped with the energy. And, and we had a baseline to work from, from the temp to see how we could improve upon it and how we could make it all, uh, you know, 
just feel cohesive and feel authentic to the time and the era and everything. And, and also, I mean, like our composers did a lot of the work too, like uh, Nick Bertel and Robert Glasper, who are like both geniuses and, and a lot of the music, a lot of the cohesiveness that you were referring to is their score that sounds like a lot of it sounds like source, you know, um, by design, like it's meant to sound authentic and, and feel like the way it was recorded in a very authentic way to the way music was made back then. And, and it, it provided a through line so that when we got to paint with fun songs and make it exciting like that, we had a, a baseline to work from. Mm-hmm. And kind of going back to Utah and Mihai, again, with that idea of how there's a, a myriad of styles in the way that we're seeing each scene, it's also about where you're taking the viewer's eye. So there's moments where the camera is going really close up on a whiskey glass as it's coming to someone's mouth and they're drinking it. And then we're going to a slightly wider shot. And so what was your process of figuring out the, the different spaces and the different ways that you wanted to carry the audience's eye within a scene in that way? I think it was about contrast for us. I think so much of the show, like thematically, is about this time in America where the country is experiencing like really big change. I think that's in the script. I think like that wanted to be in the visual, like the energy as well. So it's about like seeing the scenes with as much bravado as the script and as the characters are bringing to it, and also as much like vulnerability and humanness as they're trying to hide. I mean, at least for me, that was where it came from of like having these shots where you got these really big crane dolly shots where the characters can talk to camera and have all this swagger. And then also we can be like fly on the wall and catch these little details of them uh, that give away something else, you know? So yeah, it contrasts for me is the thing. Yeah. Was that the same for you, Mihai? I think it's that. I mean, it's also, uh, I have a feeling that we like both Todd and I love really good props. And when you have them on set and they're great, like there would be a pity not to to capture those. Yeah. And and Rich, you know, you've really had to build the fabric of, of authenticity for the time period in so many different ways in the background and even, you know, a break room, the cigarette vending machine behind, the food vending machine behind, and, and the way that there's so many kind of almost details that the audience aren't sitting and looking specifically at, that, but that really build the fabric of a scene. And so what were some of the, the more challenging elements to either source or recreate in terms of that, that are really just building the overall fabric of the time period for you and your team? Uh, for sure. Um, the, uh, y- you're always trying to, to put the appropriate details forward. And uh, both in, in large swaths and then uh, really detailed swaths. Um, and in many times, our C camera, the C camera operator, was responsible for getting uh, all of those uh, little pops of information uh, that are on set. And so we had to be ready for it. Uh, so as was Mihai was mentioning, the props they all had to be correct. Uh, every all the wording. And every contract had to be correct. Uh, all the things on the shelf that that then uh, promotes the idea of character uh, was uh, really important. Not only character in terms of general spaces, like you were mentioning the break room, but also character like inside uh, Jesse's apartment or uh, at Jerry's place or in his office or um, uh, anywhere we were. Those details are really specific, and so um, we had to be ready for. <laughs> for the onslaught of C camera, um, because at any time they could pick up something that uh, you were hoping that you got right. 
Um, and I remember around the Ocotillo pool, there was a lot of details uh, that were there. And one of them was uh, we actually brought in uh, Ocotillo plants, which are <laughs> really difficult to act to find. But we brought those in and then uh, I recall that our C camera operator loved those for many hours on end. Um, but uh, so it's it really is uh, a lot about the details. And um, but in terms of the narrative, those details really drive it forward, help to drive it forward, especially in this um, narrative format and style. In terms of details as well, Emma, I wanted to ask you about a lot of the fabrics and the materials that you were using, because obviously fabrics and materials, both for everyday clothing and for athletic wear was very different. It was a lot less breathable, you can kind of see the thickness of it on screen in certain moments. Um, and so was it a case of sourcing a lot of vintage pieces or also kind of you and your team going out and sourcing certain materials to construct elements as well out of that? And what were some of the materials that you really leaned into heavily because of the time period? Um, I mean, given the scope of the show and the amount of characters, it was really kind of a combination of all of those things. Um, all of the uniforms that you see were made for us to, um, down to some of the trims having to be knit specifically for the uniforms. So that was a huge undertaking by one of our teams within the costume team. Um, we did a lot of building for the main characters. And I think for me, you know, similarly as everyone's been talking about it was leaning into colors that felt really right and also into textures that felt right. I, you know, early on in the camera tests, we were able to kind of see how some of those textures were reading on like Claire Rothman or on Magic. And so it wasn't so much necessarily specifically finding the right, um, you know, con fiber content as it was something that would be represented on screen as looking correct. Um, yeah. Yeah. Gabe, one of the things I was also interested in, in terms of the music was the moments where you choose music that really leans into the emotion of a scene, but also the choices that you make where it kind of goes against the grain, like the end of episode three, I think is where we see the reveal of the body in the trunk. And the music's actually really peppy and really uplifting, which creates a really interesting tonal experience in watching that moment and also completely fits. And, and so how did you kind of determine where you really wanted to lean into the emotion of the scene with the choices you were making, but also the moments like that where you could have kind of a real playfulness to it and, and create a very different viewing experience for the audience? Well, we got to, uh, you know, we had the luxury, like I said before, we had the luxury of seeing what was out there, what was shot and like what the, what the picture needed, you know, like if it was, you know, if that specific scene you're talking about where they find uh, Tark, Tark's uh, manager in the trunk, if, you know, when we were going through that, we were trying to find something that was ironic and both had Vegas vibes to it and, and The Good Life by Bobby Darren. That wasn't originally the scripted song in there, but when we were playing around and trying to figure out which puzzle pieces were going to magically fit in there, it just kind of clicked and everybody loved it and, and it, it, it worked out really well. I mean, the energy that you see on screen and the way it's shot and the way it's cut together is, you know, we're sort of like, I, I look at the music sometimes like the frosting on the cake, you know what I mean? The cake's already been baked a lot and we're just trying to like add a flavor there that like makes the audience feel an extra sort of way. So like in that way, we wanted to make it a little bit more fun than morose and have a little bit more of a, uh, just like a, a good time. I mean, it's a fun show. I and mean, there's obviously there's some heavier moments. There's some really important themes and, and ideas that are in there. 
But, you know, like uh, like Rich was saying before, a lot of people are going to treat this as the historical record because they're not going to go back and read the actual history. And so we wanted to keep it authentic, but we wanted to, you know, this, this is entertainment. We wanted to give everybody a good time. And, and the first couple episodes, we ended them, even after that song that you're talking about, we ended them with these really cool sort of, I like to think of them as like, adrenaline shots like leading us into the end credits so that the audience like maybe they've digested some heavy themes or or maybe they're like we've left off on a cliffhanger but we want to kind of just like hit them with something right at the end that makes them realize and understand that even though there's a large breadth of everything that they've just digested it's a fun show and they should tune in next week so it was just some of it was just how to how to keep the audience engaged and one of the things for all of you that that I wanted to ask about is, you know, the show kind of focuses on the behind the scenes of, of, of basketball, but also at the center of it, we get this kind of burgeoning relationship between magic and cookie that we keep coming back to. And feels like we get to kind of like take a little bit of a breath with some of the moments between the two of them. And there's so many details visually sound wise that kind of interconnect the two of them in different ways and really show the development of their relationship. You know, like the yellow wall that we were talking about in the background, you know, what are the costumes that they're wearing that represent both themselves individually and how they're coming together, the way that they're being filmed, the music that we're hearing when they're on screen together. And so for all of you, I was kind of interested in, in how you wanted to approach that relationship and, and that arc throughout the season and how that influenced some of the creative choices that you made. I mean, one thing I can remember early on, Rich, was talking about building both of their apartments in Lansing and in LA physically in real space back to back with each other so that number one, they could perform in their apartments, but they could be physically, they actually perform together. And number two, the idea of actually being able to shoot the two of them with like a real life split screen. I actually don't even know if it's in the show, if there's an actual shot in the show anymore that actually physically shows them together, but it is the case that they were together. I know that's something I remember. Yeah, yeah, there was there was a scene that it's, it's not there anymore, unfortunately, but um uh, it, it was actually the, the yellow corridor and uh, magic's uh, living room right which i think is interesting because you there were times i remember where you'd have the corridor it's east coast so the corridor would be lit like night and then literally right next to it would be his apartment in la lit for day and then they'd be on the phone together and uh, at least for us i hopefully it gave the actors the feeling you know being connected but apart i don't know yeah we designed this space so that uh that um, the MSU hallway was um, in in one spot on the stage, but literally right next to it was Magic's apartment. And uh, so that, you, as Todd was saying, you could see it split screen a la uh, I Love Lucy, where you have the blade wall and you actually see the edge of the wall and we had conduit and, and you could see the stud and the whole structure of the wall. And outside of... Uh, cookies at the end of the hallway was lit for night when you went over to magics um his window was at in within the same frame and that was lit for day and outside was the orange tree that was um so uh, important to him that that he was it was a symbol of being in california and on the west coast and and this new life that he was forging for himself and also the the actual set itself was was very uh spare it was nothing to shake a stick at in terms of design, but it was intended to be that way, such that um, that when Magic first arrived, his environment was uh, kind of not quite what he thought. And it, I think it helped to drive that narrative 
somewhat and to push the idea that he was alone by himself in this not so great apartment. And uh, so that, that design was really um, indicative of um, the scripted tonality uh, of the moment. I mean, off the back of, of what Rich is saying as well in terms of, of magic and you have this, this journey and that trajectory of, of Michigan as a hometown and then coming to LA and there's also elements that kind of carry over and that idea of, oh, I thought it would be this, but maybe it's this. And, you know, Emma, I've heard you talk previously about how that informs some of the costume choices that you made of, you know, as he starts to get more success and money, he's starting to try and dress in a different way, but that there's still elements that kind of call back to the Michigan side of him. And so again, and, you know, for, for anybody who, who wants to jump in on some of the choices that that influenced, what were the ways in which even as his character moves into this trajectory with the Lakers and, and through Los Angeles, that you still wanted to have little callbacks to the Michigan side of him as a character in his hometown? I mean, I think for, um, you know, for costumes, when we were kind of putting together the broad strokes of what Michigan would look like compared to what California was going to look like, um, there was a sense of modernity to LA with the fabrics and the colors and moving into the new decade. And when we looked at actual, you know, photographs of Lansing at this period, it always feels a little bit kind of behind that, um, even though it is the same time. It's that idea of the fashions not quite making it into that area as quickly. Um, there's still a lot of style. You know, you look at photographs of the other family members or just people in the town and they still all have an incredible sense of style, but it's just not utilizing the same type of modern garments that people in LA often wear. And so one of the major kind of things that I was concerned with, with was this idea of magic moving from Lansing and coming into LA and having access to new stores, for example, being able to go to Norm's um, clothing store and have a you know tuxedo tailor made for him. What is he going to think is really cool coming from Lansing compared to what Norm would think is really cool? And so even as we move through these upcoming episodes and you see him get new clothing, it's really like a shift in fabric or texture or shine as opposed to style he still feels a little bit dated like he could take those clothes and go back to Lansing and he would be the coolest guy there yet again but in LA it it fits in but it's not as stylish as say Norm is or someone like that and I think that Cookie is a similar character in that she has a really strong sense of style to herself and you get to see more of that as she kind of comes into her own but it's not again that like stamp of modernity and just fashion that's kind of given to someone it's just their own individual sense of style coming out in what clothing they have access to yeah even even um when you look at that uh, dorm hallway um, Magic was always by himself and he was calling back to his hometown or his home state anyway. And that was very familial to him. Um, and uh, and the uh, I think in last week's episode, when Cookie came on the phone, there was several girls around and uh, and it was everything that Magic um, might even be a little wistful for at that moment. And you could even you could even see what uh, Emma was talking about that in terms of like the weather differences in terms of like some of them had thicker, heavier clothes on um, and, and magic was sitting there in his t-shirt. 
uh, in LA alone by himself, <laughs> feeling wistful. And Gabe, kind of going back to the music as well, you know, when you were talking earlier about, you know, a rough cut having much more well-known songs, but then kind of it being a different version and the end of the scene, it's a, there's actually a lot of really great deep cuts and moments where you're sitting there watching a scene and there's, there's a song that like, you don't immediately recognize the hook, but over time you're like, oh wait, I know this song. But what's beautiful about having so many great deep cuts is it doesn't take you out of the scene. It really just connects you to the scene in a subconscious way. And so I was interested if that was something that was a really conscious choice in terms of not just thinking about the, the tone of a scene in terms of choices, but also you know, not wanting to pull the audience out by suddenly giving them a hook that they know really well, but giving them something that has an element of familiarity that can create an automatic emotional connection. Well, there's like the, I mean, there's the purely creative part, which I totally agree with is that when you hear a song and especially when it's like playing deep in the background somewhere and you know it and instantly, you know, it sometimes you lean in and it takes you out of the scene a little bit as an audience member. So we try to avoid doing that. And that's like the, you know, that's the creative answer. The logistics answer is a lot of well-known songs are super expensive. And uh, you know, if you can't, you, you so you got to pick and choose your, your battles, you know, like, like everything else, we're all working within uh, the parameters that we're given, like the timelines, the budgets, everything that we have to deal with. And um, so if you put in a million Led Zeppelin songs, like you'd be making a really cool show, but it would be unaffordable. So one of the things that we had to do is we had to figure out where we wanted a, a well-known song, like where we want, you know, like the good life or a big prominent moment that you can kind of lean into it and it, it makes sense. And maybe it's a montage or maybe they're singing along to something. And then for the other ones, like, you know, the biggest creative excitement for me, I guess, is finding incredible authentic songs from the time that maybe most people don't know. And, uh, and giving a little bit of light to some local Michigan bands or some local, you know, Midwestern bands that were legit bands that toured and were like putting out records and doing great stuff, but maybe they didn't have top 10 hits. So they didn't kind of make the, uh, didn't span the test of time, like in, in public, in the public eye. So we got to do a lot of deep digging, find a lot of unknown cuts and, and talk to a lot of older musicians who had great music from then and, and get to showcase it, which is like the best part of my job. Yeah. Tadami, I also wanted to ask the two of you about um, what I believe you ended up coining the, the phrase dad cam for, where it was like a lot of the flashback scenes kind of have that, that feeling of like one of the family members round magic might've actually been the one filming this, even though it's obviously you and your team. Um, Cause I believe that also even included like adding a, adding a handle onto the camera that you were using for that to kind of create that very handheld look and feel. And I was really interested. I love that detail and was really interested in, in the genesis of where that came from and how you really wanted to utilize that as a tool throughout the series for for the connection to family yeah I mean that's like one of the most fun you know it, that came from uh, the eight millimeter camera you know at first your instinct is to build the thing to be more production friendly and to have like a shoulder mount and have like a um, wireless video signal so that we can all see it at the monitor and all these things but we realized that the more you built it out like a proper production camera the the footage became too slick and started feeling like filmmakers were making it and it lost like some of that feeling of like the dad cam thing, like a feeling of like a dad at a barbecue filming his family, you know? So ultimately the camera was best when it was just this little eight millimeter camera, the little pistol grip, the ways that they were sold back then. And then Justin, our operator was able to just be in there uh, without anyone monitoring him. And he could just get in there and tell the story and really be like a member of the barbecue of the family reunion, you know, whatever it was. 
uh, getting those really amazing moments and stressing Rich's team out as well, shooting all those little details of all the art stuff that we would fall in love with that wasn't necessarily uh, expected to be shot in super close up on, on dad cam. <laughs> it was also that like we had, Justin was doing Sikirama Ikegami in the same time and and because we're shooting A and B 35 and always adding Ikegami, Usually the Ikegami was in a weird spot and it was off axis, but it was kind of the only available spot. And then on top of that, during the rehearsals or when possible, Justin was grabbing the Super 8 and finding another impossible spot. Where like That's why I think it feels so real because they're not really composed angles because the other cameras were getting those. So a lot of times that's the big danger when you try to replicate uh, home movie feeling, but you have a professional camera operator doing it, but like we, he was, uh, he was in such strange situations trying to get that, that like it feels so real. Yeah. It also, I think it was really difficult for him during COVID because when we shot this whole show during COVID and we did the pilot before COVID and Justin was able to sneak all this eight millimeter footage on the in-between takes. Cause all the extras are sitting there. Everyone's hanging out. And it's amazing. But during, when we shot the show, everyone's wearing masks in between takes so it was really hard for Justin to get like authentic stuff when every time cut got called, everyone puts their mask back on. So it's a real, it's like a miracle what he did really to get stuff that felt like he was just hanging out, you know, but we were, yeah, in 1979. Well, this show as a whole, when you watch it, you know, the, the details of it are so strikingly intricate. And so it's genuinely, genuinely been really wonderful to hear all of you talk about this in such depth and with so much detail. So thank you so much to all of you. Really, really appreciate it. And congratulations on the show. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.